Welcome to the Work Matters Podcast. In each episode, talking with thought leaders and executives, PurposeWorks founder Thomas Bertels explores what it takes to make work more productive, valuable, impactful, and meaningful. Let's begin the conversation. So my guest today is Bob Lewis. Bob is an IT professional. You're also a consultant, you're a writer and a blogger. Uh, you, you publish numerous books. You got a weekly blog called Keep the Joint Running, which I've been enjoying for a number of years now, which I think has truly unusual insights. So without further ado, welcome to the show, Bob. Our topic today is digital transformation and what leaders can really do to be successful in that journey. So Bob, from your vantage point, where should executives start? There are so many different answers to that, but my favorite one is this, never mind the technology. Technology is almost an excuse when we're talking about the digital transformation, because by now in reasonably well-led companies, every important process is already automated. The place to start, I think, is recognizing that in the past, in the recent past, during what I call the industrial era of business, that being the era starting probably with re-engineering the corporation, Hammer and Champion's book. It has all been about process efficiency. It's all been about reducing cost. The thing about reducing cost is of all the different things that are good and important for a company, cost reduction is the easiest to measure. It does make it the most important. The most important is probably revenue. Making money is a whole lot more interesting and more fun than cutting costs. Digital is all about revenue. Again, internally, processes by now are mostly automated. That's what automation has been about. And it doesn't matter what you're doing. If you're an insurance company paying claims, if you're a retailer selling product, whatever it is, you want all of your processes to be as efficient as possible because cost is easy to measure. And a lot of companies lost sight of the fact that never mind that you need to sell people stuff. You need people to want to buy what you have to sell and you want them to come back and bring their friends. What's really been important about the digital revolution is it's providing a toolkit and a set of methodologies and a mindset among executives that says, hey, wait a minute. If we're busy cutting costs and our competitor down the street is creating a better customer experience, look at Best Buy, which is finally trying to regain its name of being the best buy. But what happened with Best Buy was way back then in the pre-World Wide Web, it was the dominant company in the consumer electronics space. And Best Buy made a good decision, which was to pick a competitor to dominate. Because if you pick off your competitors one at a time, you achieve major success. And so Best Buy killed Circuit City. You know, there are a lot of ways of characterizing this, but Best Buy just outcompeted Circuit City. It was brutal. Unless you live in Minneapolis, where I do, and Best Buy is one of the good employers in town. So we are pretty happy about that. But Best Buy chose the wrong competitor because while Best Buy was busy killing Circuit City, Amazon came along and turned Best Buy into Amazon's showroom. What happened? Well, they chose the wrong competitor. A lot of other companies don't even choose a competitor. And one of the bizarre things, I think, about a lot of business strategy, especially during the industrial era, is that the business strategy had nothing to say about outcompeting anybody. It had nothing to say about creating competitive advantage. And even if you cut costs, what you did with that money was you give it back to your shareholders in the form of dividends or stock buybacks. If you're busy doing that and Amazon is busy investing in its customer experience, Best Buy becomes Amazon showroom. 
my long-winded way of saying, if you want to get started on a digital transformation, it's all about revenue. It's all about creating a great customer experience. Oh, and by the way, it's not that efficiency is bad. If you are going to cut costs, don't have that cost cutting fall to the bottom line in terms of direct profit. Don't try and manipulate your stock price with stock buybacks or, or dividends. Reinvest it in competitive advantage, which will bring in revenue the next year and the year after that and create this massive flywheel effect that gets you going and gets you winning. So place to start, relentless focus on beating your most important competitor and two, choosing the right competitor to beat. So if I follow that logic, right, which I think makes perfect sense, is that this is really not about technology. It's really about competitive advantage. So, you know, start with what you're trying to accomplish. And I think it provides an opportunity to really shift the conversation back to the revenue side or the growth versus the cost perspective. That makes obviously the IT function a really important player there. So what's your perspective on the practice in many companies that they used to have a CIO, but now they also have a chief digital officer and many have a chief technology and a chief data officer. There's a lot of chiefs, right? So, <laughs> so what's the implication? Do we need one real powerful chief? What's your perspective? My perspective on this goes back to the fundamentals of what's the maximum number of people you can have in an effective meeting. And everybody who studied meeting dynamics knows there's a lot of seven plus or minus two. And five is probably practical minimum in terms of just covering the intellectual ground. And anything more than nine, nobody has enough time to speak their piece. So let's say you want to have seven people in the executive leadership team. If you have a chief information officer and a chief digital officer, now you got two of them doing the work of one. And by the way, what if they disagree? It's also exciting if you're the chief information officer for two reasons. One is establishing the office, establishing a chief digital officer is a vote of no confidence. And the second one is the chief digital officer in this kind of environment gets to make empty promises that the CIO has to deliver on, which is a kind of miserable position to be in because your social competitor in the executive leadership team is defining the terms of your surrender and your failure. I'm not a big fan of a chief digital officer. My idea is, my advice is, if you have a CIO who you don't trust to work, to serve as your chief digital officer, hire a different CIO, but don't have two of them, two chief technology officers. Oh yeah, you. by the way, you might have a CTO also. Seven person leadership team, take out the CIO, CTO, CDO, and you've got what? Room for four people left. Chief financial officer, head of human resources, CEO, head of marketing, and you're saturated. It's ridiculous. So one technology leader, and then recognize that like every other leader, the information officer has to be a leader to the IT organization, has to be effective and make the organization effective and needs to provide technology leadership to the company, the strategic leadership that says, five years ago, we never heard the term machine learning. Now, every function in the company can take advantage of machine learning to take the simple decisions that we're kicking off the humans when we don't need to and turn them over to machinery that we can't leave completely unsupervised because there have been entire science fiction novels written about that. The CIO is the person in the best position to provide technology and strategic technology leadership because the CIO should be keeping track of what's practical in the technology marketplace, should also be able to translate that into places that the company can take advantage of it. And three, and this is the piece that gets talked about the least, every CIO knows integration is the hardest part 
of managing the technical architecture, managing the technology that's deployed. A lot of these new technologies come out and there isn't enough attention paid to what it means to integrate them because integration is one of these areas of exponential increase of cost and difficulty. That's the other thing the CIO can bring is that sense of reality that says, it sounds really nice that we can plug in a Watson and now we got artificial intelligence, but it's a hell of a lot more complicated to integrate that into everything else that we're doing without the costs exploding. Well, I mean, what I see in a lot of my clients, and I'm not sure if you're seeing the same, but I hear a lot of CIOs saying that, you know, 90 to 95% of their budget really goes into supporting legacy architectures, whether that's, you know, the ERP system or what have not. And the more antiquated your technology is, probably the larger, right? But that leaves precious little money really for projects that sort of fit into this digital transformation bucket, which are oftentimes, you know, a lot of experimental efforts, right? What do you see and what's your perspective? Managing technical architecture is one of those rabbit holes. If you head down that rabbit hole, you'll never escape. But if you don't head down that rabbit hole, nasty things will come pouring out of it. If you're deploying a new system of any kind, you're deploying the system and you're doing a business case for that system. And part of the business case for that system should be the increase in IT staffing long-term needed to support the system. And there should be an ironclad signed in blood agreement with the rest of the executive leadership team that when those numbers click to another full-time equivalent, IT gets the right to hire with no second guessing because that's what new systems cost is there's an ongoing cost of maintaining the things and continuing the integration effectiveness, extending their abilities. So I completely agree that the numbers I've seen weren't quite as bad as what you were saying, but they're still pretty bad. At best, 30% of the IT budget goes to new functionality and every time it goes to new functionality, that nibbles away at that 30%. So now it's 25% and on and on and on. If you don't have an effective technical architecture management function, you need to have one. I've been in quite a few companies now where the starting point for managing technical architecture is asking the consultants to please get them an accurate inventory of what they have deployed. Entire IT organization, they don't have a list of applications that are running the company. It is embarrassing and it should be embarrassing. And it's another one of these things, is it the CIO's fault? Yes, in the sense the CIO didn't make the case that they need to invest in a technical architecture function. Shame on the ELT for not recognizing that if you've got a factory, you have bills of materials for your products and you've got a, a solid documentation on everything in the factory. But what is virtual when it's IT and you can't translate that to an immediate payoff that you can picture in your mind because you know, I'm a marketing person, I'm not a technology person, quote unquote. If that's the attitude, they're not providing IT with the budget to staff a technical architecture function and have it work effectively. And I just finished three 2000 word articles for CIO.com on this subject that I welcome everyone to go look for. Managing technical architecture is incredibly complicated. And that's if you've done a good job and you've kept it streamlined all the way around. Otherwise, you have multiple solutions to a single problem and need to be consolidated. You probably haven't invested enough to keep versions current even. This is one of those hidden responsibilities that if you do it well, nobody will notice. And if you do it badly, they will. And there's no more thankless position to be on earth than a situation where you're only visible if you fail.
It captures the central dilemma of the IT function really well, right? Because yep. if you're doing a great job, nothing breaks, right? Mm -hmm. It's like customer service. If you screw up, everybody knows. You know, I had a client once and the uh, head of IT operations uh, asked for a little bit of my time. And his challenge was he was supposed to produce a monthly status report for the executive leadership team. So this was IT operations, not AppDev, you understand. Yeah, IT operations, monthly report. And he said, my challenge is I can't get these folks engaged in the report. I give them all the statistics so they don't seem to care. What I suggested, and sad to say he never actually did this, but he liked the idea. What I suggested is they have a cover page on the report and the cover page shows the head of IT operations in front of various backgrounds. You know, sort of like Zoom lets you put a background in. Only you use Photoshop to adjust the transparency of the picture of the head of IT operations. So you have one kind of predator-like where he's almost completely transparent. And you can only just see a little bit of glass outline all the way to opaque. And this is the invisibility index. So this is his way of explaining the executive leadership team. We had a good month, you can see me. Pardon me, we have a bad month, you can see me. If a good month, I'm transparent. He never did it, but he kind of used some of the concepts at least. So I viewed that as a win. What are some of the dangerous misconceptions people have of the IT function? Oh, that's easy. Every conception they have is false. It's probably safe to say, well, never mind all that. Here, <laughs> There's one that I view as being the most pervasive and the most pernicious is this old notion. It goes back. In fact, I, I go back just far enough to remember when it got started. This is the idea that IT is, should be run like a business with internal customers. And this got started in the early 1980s, as I recall. And it's a horrible idea. It's a horrible idea top to bottom. Scott Lee and I wrote a book titled The Cognitive Enterprise. The premise of the cognitive enterprise is successful organizations will be more like predators than ecosystems. Predators have purpose. They hunt, they make decisions. Ecosystems are places for predators to roam. If you have internal customers, you're not focused on creating value for real paying customers. If I'm IT and I have internal customers, I'm supposed to make you happy. Now, there's no particular reason that making you happy creates any business value, whatever, it creates political value but it doesn't create business value. My most recent book is titled, There's No Such Thing as an IT Project, co-authored with a, my good friend, Dave Kaiser, who's a very talented CIO. A while back, I had an e-tailer, a very successful e-commerce company. You'd recognize them if I uh, mentioned the name. And they were looking at e-merchandising packages. Merchandising, this is taking what retailers know about in-store merchandising and putting this kind of functionality to play in their website. So they called it the eMerge project. And I had a session with the executive sponsor and I said, please, I'm begging you. I said, don't call it the eMerge project. And he says, why? We're installing eMerge. I don't care if you're installing eMerge. Please don't call it the eMerge project. He says, what do you want me to call it? I want you to call it the online merchandising project. Oh, by the way, using eMerge. But the focus should not have been on installing the software. The focus should have been on improving their ability to do online merchandising. So the punchline, about a month after the project completed, the project was quite successful. They installed eMerge, they integrated with the other systems. It was all real good. And I hear two merchants arguing with each other. So what's going on? 
So it turned out they each had a redesign for the company homepage. And each one was passionately certain that they had the better design. And they said, Bob, can, would you look at these for us and tell us what you think? And I'm thinking, okay, I'm a guest here. I'm a consultant. I've been in a no-win situation if I could give an opinion. They said, so here's my opinion. You got eMerge. Why don't you use it to A-B test the two designs to see which one sells more product? And they said, we can do that? This is the problem when you've got IT projects, when IT has internal customers, instead of IT being a collaborator in intentional business change. So this, I think, is the, uh, the single biggest myth of running IT is that IT should look at the rest of the business as its customer. IT needs to look at the rest of the business as its collaborator in achieving intentional business change. And it needs to take its business analysts and refocus them from requirements. The requirements is a terrible word because <laughs> my first exposure to the term requirements is that I figured out the requirements working with the business users. And then I was asked by my management, were these the requirements before or after you negotiated? <laughs> I don't understand. If it's a requirement, there's you, it's required. And you know, if you want to be to have nice to have management, I could collect the nice to haves, but it didn't make any sense to me. Then it hasn't ever since. Business analysts need to refocus from gathering requirements to helping redesign whatever that part of the business is, so it runs differently and better. And then to translate that into not only the, what the technology needs to do differently, but if there's a process change required or not required, but sometimes it's an opportunity. There's this thing that a lot of IT leaders call rogue IT or shadow IT. So let's imagine you're running a restaurant and you're running the restaurant the way that the IT manages rogue IT. And you go to the restaurant and you order a, a 16 ounce porterhouse, medium rare, thank you. And your server says, you know, you're kind of looking pudgy here. So I, I don't think you should be ordering the steak. <laughs> I think you should be ordering the Cobb salad. This is the model of customer relationship management if IT has the rest of the business as customer. If we just take this fundamental idea that IT needs to bring all of the tools available for making intentional business change happen and view its job as collaborating with the rest of the enterprise to bring value to external real paying customers to build that relationship. Again, here we are back to digital. You want their wallet share, but you also want their mind share. You want them to come back and bring their friends. I want to get your perspective on something else because we talked about re-engineering early on in the conversation and that was really driven by a strong focus on process, all right? And end-to-end mm -hmm. -end process and process management. But obviously technology enabled a lot of this. And I feel like for the last 25, 30 years, when it's like, you know, beating that process and technology topic pretty hard. I don't see the same investment on the people side, all right? Whether that is designing more scalable organizational structures, whether that is redesigning jobs that they're actually intrinsically motivating and interesting. What's the root cause behind that? I think when I was much younger, your question would be marketed as ripped from today's headlines. These things are getting better because I remember when Target Corporation issued a 27-page dress code. When this happened, again, this is all Minneapolis-based, so I, it was up close and personal, but it turned out General Mills in response to Target's 20-page dress code, told a business reporter in town, we have a four-word dress code. 
dress for your day. It, there's a reason people are leaving the workforce. Uh, I saw another statistic, 70%, I'll get the numbers wrong, but along these lines, 70% of the workforce said that they would cheerfully take a 25% pay reduction if they could work for a decent boss. It's an appalling number. And I have no managers that exemplify for me why this happened. It is as if most of the knowledge workforce in the United States, most of the workforce, in fact, all decided spontaneously to form a union. It's a crowdsourced union. Nobody planned this. It just kind of happened. But they all walked away from their work. And now companies can't find enough good people. In fact, they can't find enough mediocre people to fill the openings that they have. And they can't figure out why. And the answer is because they hate you. So now do a little soul searching and ask, couldn't you have just been more pleasant and less disrespectful? I heard a quote from the CEO. This is probably 20 years back now. He said this in an all hands to the company's employees around the globe. He said, from now on, our employees need to understand that they are fungible commodities. Now, I'm that's a statement, thinking, right? I mean, that is, uh, I'm, I'm thinking, you don't understand, right? I mean, there's nothing. Yeah, I mean, it was a rare moment of honesty, I guess, but couldn't they have won that by like the head of marketing who said, help me tune up the phrasing? It's appalling, but um, this really is kind of the attitude, I think, that has led to the current labor shortages is people are used to companies treating them with complete and utter disrespect. And oh, by the way, companies had been acting as if the law of supply and demand didn't apply to labor. But guess what, sports fans? There are fewer people who want to work for you. So the demand has exceeded the supply, which means the price is supposed to go up. So if you're really pleased with the law of supply and demand when it came to pricing your products or negotiating the uh, wage for your employees, choose at least temporarily on the other foot. I look at it a little differently. I think okay. I think it's a product design question and the product job that you have is oftentimes just poorly designed. And so it is not competitive in the marketplace. And people actually value the features of a well-designed job that they actually oftentimes take even well, lower salary to do it. The whole nonprofit sector is a good example. If all you have to offer is a salary, that's easily matched in a competitive marketplace. Well, you may think we disagree, but I disagree about our disagreeing. <laughs> I completely agree with you. And I think there are two pieces. So the first is, couldn't it be more pleasant? Yeah. Just a, a little bit of attention paid to, are we treating people with respect? Are we creating a cube farm that's not so crowded that everybody dies of claustrophobia? And oh, by the way, do we have managers who are screaming at people and treating them horribly because that's bad for business? The other half of this, I think, is helping people connect the dots between the work that they do and something important happening. Yeah. Not exactly on point, but one of the tragedies, I think, of modern society is our best mathematical talent. I mean, these are people who could be creating warp drive. These are people who could be solving the energy crisis. But the big money for mathematical talent is going through the quants on Wall Street, who create no social value of any kind. It's just a money amplifier, right? Well, if we could somehow create a more meaningful environment for the best talent so that they think they're getting compensated fairly, but more importantly, they have a direct line of sight between what they're doing and 
saving the planet, solving diseases, whatever the, the subject is, if we could just do that kind of realignment so that people recognize the importance of how they're spending a very large chunk of their lives, I think that would be transformational. I fully agree. I think if we can maximize the purpose or meaningfulness of the work that people do and minimize the silliness and non-value-added things that we ask them to do as well and compensate them fairly and treat them nicely, I think that would be a game changer. Of course, that's revolutionary and will not happen anytime soon, but you know that would obviously be the answer to success. I'm with you. So, Bob, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for sharing your insights with, with our listeners. For those of you that are interested in learning more about Bob's views, I recommend you check out issurvivor.com. There's a newsletter you can subscribe to, and I've been enjoying it. It comes every week, like clockwork. I don't think you have taken any time off in the last couple of years. At least I didn't notice it, which is really enjoyable and I think really useful and practical. And then you also have a number of different books out, right? What's the latest where that listeners should check out? <laughs> well, first of all, thank you for that. Uh, very flattering. I enjoyed the conversation, and I think that while well, you supplied your insights in the form of questions, and mine were offered in the form of very long-winded perambulations, this was great. And thank you for the soapbox. I very much appreciate it. Most recent book is titled, There is No Such Thing as an IT Project. Subtitle is A Handbook for Intentional Business Change. It encapsulates a lot of what I've been writing about over the years, a lot of my thinking over the years. The titles should be self-explanatory, but as always, the devil's in the details. And this tries to take the reader through all of the different pieces that need to be realigned so that businesses can change intentionally. Thank you so much, Bob Lewis. And I uh, hope you stay warm in, uh, in, in uh, <laughs> sunny, sunny Minneapolis. But You're, uh, too, yeah. you're too late. <laughs> yes. So here are my takeaways from my conversation with Bob Lewis. One, digital is all about revenue. And as Bob puts it, making money is a lot more fun than cutting costs. Secondly, the notion of the internal customer is a really dangerous concept because it takes the eyes away from the paying customer and the opportunity for IT to improve the digital customer experience. Thirdly, there is no such thing as an IT project. So what that means is that the IT function really needs to invest in building capabilities whether it's related to process optimization, user experience, strategy formulation, or organizational change management. That's all for now. Please also check out the other episodes of the Work Matters podcast and see you soon. We hope you enjoyed this discussion. If you did, please subscribe, like, share, or comment. Until next time, let's make work matter.